welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about the intersection of faith and mental health. We are so glad to be back with a new episode. Today's conversation is on a heavier topic, though, suicide. What are the warning signs we should be looking for? What are the steps to getting help? And what can the church do to be more proactive in addressing this issue? Here are your hosts, Michael, Lindsay, and Evan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone podcast, the podcast hosted by three individuals so well acquainted with all of the different flavors and sparkling water nowadays because we're trapped in our homes because of the pandemic. You got your bubbly, you got your ahas, you got your le creux, le coup, le, how do I pronounce that? Le croix. Le croix. You don't know. <laughs> We know what they all are because we're trying to limit our calories and not put on the COVID-19, and we are here and ready to go. We are so excited to be here with you. For us, this is September. It is beautiful outside, and so we hope that wherever you are, whether you're listening to it right after we released it or whether you're listening to it years in the future, that all is well with you and that you are blessed. I am Evan DeYoung, and once again, am joined by my wonderful friends and co-hosts, Lindsay and Michael. I'll let them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit more just about who they are. Hey, everybody. Lindsay Geist back again. I am a licensed clinical social worker as well as uh, ordained minister in the United Methodist tradition. I have a background of working with individuals through crises and navigating anxiety, depression, and uh, hey, Michael McCord, good to be with all of you again this week, and um, look forward to spending the day with you today, or at least maybe not the day, but at least the next hour. But uh, I've I've been a uh, pastor for twenty years and spent my entire time working with young adults, especially as they come of age and some of the struggles that that college and life decisions present, and walking alongside people who who end up uh, seeking professional mental health uh, as a way to care for their souls and, and their, their bodies. So uh, that's why this podcast is so important is how do we, how do we help make things uh, normal for people to talk about mental health and Mm. to take care of themselves. And that's why we're here today. Absolutely. We are, as always, going to explore some of the concepts of mental health and uh, faith in general, uh, specifically the Christian faith for us, and uh, what we can do to bridge the gap between uh, our church communities and uh, the reality of the world that we find ourselves in, because sometimes things don't always feel as connected as they should. And so we believe that uh, there's a significant connection between solid mental health practices and solid soul care in the way that we practice our faith and how God has created us. And so today we are going to talk about suicide. We'll just be really direct. Um, We're going to talk very directly about suicide. Uh, And the reason that we're doing that is because for us it's September, uh, which is a special month in the mental health world, Lindsay, right? It is Suicide Awareness Month right now. Okay, perfect. Uh, And so for us, uh, we felt like that was something that was really important to talk about. Now, for us, we're always pretty conversational and lighthearted. And we know that this topic has a lot of gravity. But uh, just so you know, we're gonna, we're gonna talk very frankly about suicide. We know that everybody comes from a different experience. We don't know exactly what your experience has been with uh, your personal struggles, the struggles of family and friends, and how uh, this topic may have interacted with you in your life. But uh, we want you to know just from the outset that um, we really care. We care about you. We care about your situations. And that more than that, that the God of the universe uh, created you and he cares about you and everyone else in your lives and that you're going to interact with. And that's going to be the framework that we approach this. So Lindsay, just as our standard intro, we understand what suicide is, but can you kind of create some framings uh, around kind of how we're going to discuss suicide and what your history uh, in dealing with in your training as a clinician has really taught you about this topic? Thanks, Evan. Like we said, September is Suicide Awareness Month. So it's a specific month of the year where clinicians and communities go out of their way to make sure to have even more conversations than ever before about suicide. 
It's also at the forefront for us right now as the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, have just released some recent statistics about suicide rates and suicidal thoughts, also called suicidal ideation, in the month of June. 11% of adults thought about suicide in June this year. That is double the rate of last summer. And 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds contemplated suicide. In addition, 30% of unpaid caregivers caring for adults were thinking about suicide. And 21% of essential workers had suicidal thoughts in June of 2020. So while suicide is a topic that should always be talked about so that we can care for one another well and also normalize it in the fact that it we reduce the stigma, it shouldn't be a scary topic that we avoid. But we also know that now more than ever, we need to be talking about this topic. I didn't want to jump in too soon because I want to make space for the gravity of those numbers. And I think the way that that illustrates the realness of the world around us, I, th I think this is the kind of topic that um, it tugs at a lot of things in our lives and in our minds and our energy. And it feels very heavy at times. And Lindsay, I always have a really hard time thinking about talking about this with folks because I feel like I'm just going to, I'm worried that I'm going to put somebody on a bad path and that I just, uh, just don't bring it up, then maybe it won't happen. But it seems like from some of our previous conversations that that's not something that I should be afraid of and not something that we should be afraid of together in our conversation that talking about suicide isn't going to be something that would spark someone to carry out an action that I would feel like is somehow my fault or I contributed to. But I think that's a lot of the reality in our conversation around suicide. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I can see how the topic feels so daunting at times or so heavy that it can be scary to discuss. And it can be a topic that it feels safer to avoid it and to hide from it or to say, I'll let a clinician handle that. And there are people trained to do this and not me. Mm -hmm. In reality, you being present with somebody is the best thing that you can offer them. There is almost no likelihood that you are going to say something that all of a sudden will make somebody act and complete their and and come up with a suicidal thought. If anything, the reality is is that if we talk about suicide directly to somebody, it reduces their chances of completing the action. Hmm. Because it means we're willing to talk about it and enter that scary place with somebody else, that place of darkness that we're not trying to run away from them. We don't think that they're weird or terrible, but we are willing to be present and be talking about it. Mm. Michael, you have some practical experience with that, I know, and, and you've been in that critical, honestly terrifying moment with individuals who are really struggling. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what your experience has been? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the the really unique opportunities that being in ministry with college students, with young adults presents is... Um, being there in their most vulnerable moments, um, which run the full gamut um, of life. and But certainly one of those uh, is suicide and something that um, unfortunately have become pretty acquainted with the, the ideation, the thinking about suicide, the 
the making plans, um, seeking professional help, getting students to hospitals to help them get stabilized. Um, and uh, my very first experience with it uh, was um, was pretty close in that a, a good friend of mine at the time, my freshman year of college, um, committed suicide during spring break. Uh, and we came back from spring break and, uh, and, and learned about that. And I, I can remember my first thoughts um, was, was there something I could have done? Uh, was there something I didn't do um, or something I did that contributed to it? Uh, and I think that's, those are, those are often the words that are thoughts that come to our mind. And sometimes those thoughts end up being so, so, uh, so much, uh, have so much weight that it, it even affects our own lives. Um, and I also think it kind of, the question that you started off with or the scenario you start off with is sometimes the fear of saying something wrong or contributing to it prevents us from from reaching out and talking and supporting our friends whom we know are struggling with really serious issues of self-worth and, and life. Um, and so uh, I can certainly um, tell you that I've been there and I've experienced it. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult place to be. My first time professionally dealing with suicide um, as a, as a minister, I was young. Um, I was probably 22 um, when a student reached out, a student of a student reached out to me and said there was uh, uh, one of, one of our students who planned to end their life and was on the roof of a, of a dorm. Um, We called the police and uh, then I ended up sitting on the roof with this student um, as they contemplated ending their life. And you know, thankfully, if that night, uh, he came down um, and and we we got help, immediate help. And then uh, the, the real work started days after that, when um, the most what I discovered, the most important thing that that person needed was consistency of relationship mm-hmm. and without condemnation, without feeling like they had to relive that moment every day, but that they could talk about real things um, without believing that somehow I looked at them differently and just having, having conversations while they sought professional help, counselors and psychiatrists and medical professionals who are providing that, that clinical support, the kind of stuff that Lindsay does for, for her clients. Um, being a friend and being present and listening and not condemning and being supportive uh, and having relationships is one of the most powerful things you can do as a person for someone who's going through that. Um, and I learned, I, I got a coach. I found someone who, who was a counselor uh, at the time who helped me through that. And, and what his guidance was, was just be real, be present. And there's nothing you're going to say. You're not going to contribute to it. You're not going to make it. Cause I was scared to death that I would say something that would cause him to, to complete um, the initiative of, of suicide, you know? And so it, it scared me, but he kept saying to me, just reassuring me that what they need most of all is just that vulnerability and that presence and, and um, to be, to be there for them. So I don't know if that's helpful for anyone, but, but um, that's kind of my yeah. experience. Yeah. That's so similar to uh, the, even the time frame and the situations in which uh, I remember being first introduced to the idea of it. Uh, I had friends in high school who struggled and had some really challenging issues uh, that I just couldn't quite wrap my mind around why I didn't understand and um, remember sitting with friends and walking them to the counselor's office and following up with them and their parents. And and again, in college, encountering students who were struggling and sitting with people and having conversations of, you know, I'm going to stay with you or we're going to go to the hospital, but I can't, I can't leave you alone right now, you know, and um, 
the feeling of helplessness when presented with this situation is very real and there's a real weight to it. And it is very encouraging to hear that the stigma is the most dangerous thing of not talking about it. Uh, Mm. And that this is something that um, just checking in is always going to be helpful and being supportive is always going to be helpful. That being said, what are some of the warning signs and risk factors that we should be aware of Lindsay when it comes to maybe this is something I should just check in on specifically. Cause I don't really want to go down my contact list and just say, Hey, I've been thinking about the, this is suicide awareness month and I'm texting you not saying that you're suicidal, but uh, you know, if you are, it's cool. We can talk, you know, that seems a little too forward. Uh, so it seems like maybe there's some ways that we can know when is a good time to bring it up. What's amazing is that for somebody that was in, is in that really dark, desperate moment uh, when it feels like there's not a lot of options of ways to get out of the situation, uh, text like that sounds really random to you, but might actually be an incredible gift Mm. to just even out of the blue said, just checking in and wanted to see how you were. Yeah. Before before I list warning signs and risk factors, we've used some language that I want to make sure that we define. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we've used the term suicide, but we've also talked a little bit about suicidal ideation. And so I want to make sure that we understand the difference in those two. Um, that suicidal ideation is comments or thoughts about suicide. So comments or thoughts about ending one's life. And suicidal ideation can be on this huge spectrum. Mm -hmm. So it can be from uh, thoughts such as, I wish I wasn't here, or nothing matters, or I wish I could just disappear all the way to explicit thoughts of how you would harm yourself Mm -hmm. and kill yourself. Mm. And that means that there is means and a plan. And so on the spectrum, there are different responses that we can take along the way. Um, The, the safety intervention that needs to happen looks different with some of those thoughts such as nothing matters or I wish I wasn't here all the it and is very different than somebody that has an active plan and the means at that moment. So I wanted to make sure we defined those things before we jumped in further. I think that's really helpful, Lindsay, and I I think um, we often use sometimes use words that 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 mean a lot to us and a lot of substance to us, and 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 we don't necessarily not everyone's familiar with them. I think ideation is one of those, um, mm-hmm. and that I, I think what you shared there about sort of the broad spectrum of thinking about suicide um, is a really important one, and one that that I think we'll get into a little bit more distinguishment here. We'll kind of explain a little bit more about those different places, but. But I think one one thing I would say, just as a as a as a practitioner uh, of ministry, is is anytime someone mentions worth life, it's an opportunity. It's a place where you start to perk up uh, mm-hmm. and 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 begin to ask questions uh, in ways that tell us what I mean. What do you mean by that? Like you don't think you belong here, or you don't think anyone care if you weren't here. Those are a lot of the phrases I would hear. It's like, I don't think anybody, if I, if I die today, nobody would even know I was gone. That's there. Sometimes my experience is that, that's that, that people will say things like that as a hope that you might ask them what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and then I know we'll get a little bit more further in as, as we find out what they mean. But I, I, I just thought it was kind of worth noting that when someone says a, they feel like you might be a trustworthy person a lot of times. Yes. Uh, and they're, they're hoping that you might respond to that in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also 
when I reference that spectrum of suicidal ideation, anytime somebody's expressing thoughts anywhere on that spectrum, it is an alert to everyone around them. And so one is on depending on where you fall on that spectrum does not mean that uh, it's not as serious as other parts of that spectrum. It simply changes some of the intervention tools that I as a clinician would mm-hmm. take next steps doing, mm-hmm. but it does not necessarily mean that for you sitting with a friend that you need to change how you would interact. I also want to note that we keep referencing lots of how you would care for a friend. That's partly because we always seem to talk as human beings about like, that's not me. That's a friend of mine dealing Mm -hmm. with that. Or I'm asking for a friend. If you are struggling with this right now, you are not alone in this. And so I do not want you to hear that anytime we reference, oh, a friend could be that you think that there's something strange about you or it's only other people. Mm-hmm. I think it's just our common lingo to vulnerability for human beings is uncomfortable. And so we almost always talk about our friends instead of ourselves. That's helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. Going, so, go ahead. Going into warning signs um, that we'd mentioned a few minutes ago, there are some warning signs. Now, anytime I list, give a list of something on this podcast, please do not start using it like checkboxes. And all of a sudden go, ta-da, I have figured somebody out. Or they meet all of the boxes. These are just some of the things on the list that you could be aware of along the way. But some warning signs of suicide. Increased alcohol or drug use. Usually that means that someone or you yourself are trying to escape something or trying to disconnect or numb yourself from some of the pain. And so increased use can be a warning sign. Another one is aggressive behavior, lashing out, acting out. And again, some of these things can be warning signs for all sorts of things. So that's where you don't need to fully self-diagnose. Be aware of these things. Another warning sign is withdrawal from friends, family, and community. Starting to disconnect in some ways is a key warning sign. Another one is dramatic mood swings. Now, I'm, when we say dramatic mood swings, we are not meaning those mood swings that we all have experienced, or maybe you're younger and have not experienced it yet, the going through puberty mood swings, like we're not talking that. We're talking just extreme highs or extreme lows. You don't understand me, dad. (laughs) Yeah, it can be exacerbated in that time of your life, but we're talking mood swings more than that. (laughs) Michael, you're laughing some. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've got a nine-year-old, so we're, we're experiencing that, but yeah, no, this would be like mood swings that like physically, like are physically debilitating withdrawal Mm -hmm. from normal activities. Then, then what I've seen too, is like, they'll go from that place sort of, uh, and then all of a sudden just elated and, and uh, like, like. Trying to the cover it up almost. opposite. Yeah. Like, like covering it with all this activity and bluster and energy. And so you sort of see this swing between very different, like personified experience. Sometimes kind of, a way you know. to describe it is kind of, uh, is it incongruent? Discon- My math major's failing me it's now. It's one of those two. Whatever. Incongruent, so, discongruent. I don't know. It's, it, yeah. it, it, they don't relate together. Okay. They, they don't make sense together. So incongruent mood swings of things that something that would have 
possibly made you sad, but then made you very sad or something uh, that could have made you happy and you didn't have quite that response. That can be some of the dramatic mood swings. And another one of the warning signs is impulsive or reckless behavior. Things that you are doing that uh, could put your health uh, or safety or life at risk. And that can be a warning sign for suicide. Okay, so let's say I see one of these warning signs in myself or another. Mm-hmm. How on earth do I bring this up? What would, what would it be like to just acknowledge what you noticed in somebody? Mm-hmm. And name it. I feel like as humans, we start spending a lot of time overthinking everything. And what would it be like if we just started naming what's happening around us? Name that you think that so-and-so or yourself has been drinking more lately. Mm-hmm. Or smoking a lot more weed lately. Or you see them making choices that uh, really reckless choices of uh, taking risks with their body that they might not. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm about to give an example that every person that rides a motorcycle do not hate me. But let's say you have no real experience riding a motorcycle and you're all of a sudden out and about on some mountainous backcountry road at a hundred miles an hour. Uh, Sometimes reckless behavior can be an indicator that you're not concerned about your life Mm -hmm. in the same way, because if you were gone, it wouldn't matter. Mm. So I think a lot of times just addressing it, it is a real key to things like this, bringing it up, naming it. So another uh, approach, an additional approach, I think is uh, that I found works with, you know, again, most of my practice has been with, with young adults, but I think that there's a lot of trend transferable experiences is I might start off with something. If Evan, if I saw you displaying, signs that I was a little concerned about that there might be going some issues. I'd be, mm-hmm. I would, um, I would invite you to, to, to coffee or to come by to meet somewhere a little bit more a uh, private, maybe than that. And just start off a conversation about like, you know, Evan, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you. You mean mm-hmm. a lot to me. Um, I really appreciate. And then think very specific thoughts about Evan, you're, you always seem so willing to connect with me and understand me and check in with me. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And I, I just want to ask you how you've been doing. Mm-hmm. What I find in those situations is when we provide affirmation to someone who's potentially thinking suicidal thoughts is it's, it's a little disjarring for them because they've had this tape running in their mind that they're a bad person, Mm -hmm. that they don't have worth, that nobody loves them, that if they were gone, nobody would notice. And what it does is it sort of disarms that system and, and gets a reaction usually. So, so what I might experience is you say, well, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that's any of that's true. And then you, you begin to ask the question, what do you mean? I mean, what do you mean? You don't think any of that's true, that nobody likes you, that you don't really have any meaning. Mm -hmm. So, so sometimes if it's, if it's hard for you to broach like the affect, the thing that you see them doing, like if, if Evan, you've been drinking a whole lot and I don't, I feel really uncomfortable calling you out on that. Maybe you take a different approach and say, Evan, gosh, I just really, you mean a lot to me. And I just wanted to say, thank you. That's why I wanted to buy you coffee today. And you know, how have you been? What's going on with you? Cause mm-hmm. I feel like you're always checking in with me, you know, and that just, it, it flips a script a little bit in a way that sometimes allows people to be a little bit more vulnerable because they, they, they have this like record running in their mind over the story they're telling themselves over and over and over. Um, and, and for you to sort of disrupt that gives them a chance to, 
to talk. That internal record is and kind of looping narrative is one that is present for a lot of people struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. It is, it is one that seems to at some point spiral deeper and lead somebody to think about suicide, but it is one that is common for a lot of people battling depression. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. That is the common theme I've heard in it is, is that record and how important and how for, for students who, who have thought about suicide in particular, that, that became louder. It became more destructive, more constant where someone who's, who's experiencing depression or anxiety is another one, never feeling good enough um, and feeling anxious about that. Like, I think a lot of us all have internal dialogue. Let me just, let me be clear. I have an internal dialogue uh, that, that says things about me that, that are um, not true or they're half truths. Uh, They're things, I think all of us uh, have in us a, a part of us that looks at us uh, kind of cross-eyed. I don't know. Does it doesn't see us as the real self. We have self. some negative internal yeah. automatic thoughts. For lots of reasons. Lots of reasons that they're there. But but as, as it becomes more pronounced and more destructive and more, and so that's where you'll see alcohol and drug use is to try to silence that, that voice that they're hearing, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that try to create numbness is what they, a lot of times have told me they're they're looking for. So anyway, I don't know if that's that yeah. healthy for you to think about as a, no, as a way to bridge that conversation. That's really helpful. I think that bridges into kind of the church element too, as uh, as we look at our faith and how the church should interact with mental health in general, and especially suicide. I have seen just personally uh, the church and persons of faith do what I would say is a significant amount of harm around mental health and issues of suicide and uh, have a lot of my conversations have been around helping myself and others walk back some incorrect and bad theology and bad practices and bad terminology. So when we look at the Christian faith and we look at scripture and how we think of suffering in the world and how it interacts with the idea of suicide and our humanity, what truth and comfort can we find in scripture and what the Bible says and what God says to us about our humanity and the desire that we would have to end our own life? The first thing that comes to mind is these narratives that have often lived in the church. If you kill yourself, then you will go to hell. Yeah, that's the most common conversation that I have had with, with students and peers uh, around suicide is when we do like a question box where people can ask questions anonymously, that question gets asked at least once every time. I have a, a friend uh, who who's Jewish and whose uh, relative or relative uh, committed suicide and um, she went to the funeral and the funeral was, was in a different uh, Christian tradition than, than ours, than mine. Um, but, but they, uh, the entire sermon was that this person was in hell, burning in hell. And do you want to be there too? Or do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your, as your savior? So, so there is this body of, of our segment of, of Christianity um, that does believe that it's an unforgivable sin that requires eternal punishment. Um, and then they use that as a, a, as a deterrent. It's, it's sort of like, if you think about how we, we try to use the death penalty as a deterrent for people committing heinous crimes um, in the church and, you know, and, like so many times we say on this podcast, I don't think that necessarily these these ideas came out as a way to hurt people. I don't. I think they came out of a out of a sincere desire to try to prevent people from from ending their own life, and so they create this this 
belief system and language system around suicide that they're trying to use eternal damnation as a as a deterrent for someone Already committing suicide. <laughs> right. Whoa. But what they that's what they don't understand is is that person is in Sheol at that moment. Yeah, the darkness con- it, is so thick at that moment that the thought of being anywhere else would be less of a hill. That's right. So so let's that be moment. very clear. I, I want to really lay it out. So what I'm hearing you say, but I haven't heard us say directly, is that someone who commits suicide does not automatically go straight to hell. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happens to people when and, and by what methods in specific detail like you like some people would like. But it says this in Romans 8. For I am, Paul writes to the church in Rome, who's under heavy persecution, experiencing pretty hard things. In fact, earlier he, he talks about the whole world is groaning. We're all just at a loss, which I think in some ways really resonates with us today where we find ourselves in this pandemic and racial uh, upheaval and uh, cultural battles uh, the, the whole world groans, but then says down at the end at 38, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Amen. For me... I interpret that is, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor suicide, nor anything can separate us from God's redemptive love. You know, and I think there's evidence of that throughout Scripture in, in the way Jesus interacts with the thief at the, at the crucifixion scene. And that there's this uh, persistent calling and reconciling that, that Jesus, that our Creator um, envisions, envisions with us and journeys with us in that. And so I would say as, as, um, as in my personal uh, Christian experience that suicide is not uh, require eternal damnation and that God's love persists and is in all things and part of all things and with all things, even in the darkest of moments. And that's where God shows God's self probably sometimes the most potent mm-hmm. for people is in their weakest and darkest moment. And and scripture addresses uh, these feelings of darkness and desperation. It's not something that scripture avoids and everything's rosy and happy all the time. One of My favorite psalms is Psalm 88. It is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of sadness. And all psalms of lament resolve themselves at the end. So they will cry out in desperation, and then they will usually end something like, Oh God, but I am so grateful for you, and your hand extends itself to me. Or some sort of redemptive phrase. I think why I love Psalm 88 so much is the final verse. Verse 18 goes, says, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. It doesn't try to fix everything. That Psalm ends of this understanding when everything feels desperate and closing in. Yeah, there are, there are a number of references to individuals who commit suicide throughout scripture, particularly in the old Testament. Um, so it, it's a reality, I think of life. Um, and what I think is, is most helpful for me in those moments is that God is with us. We're not alone. Um, And even when, and especially when someone is in such a dark 
and lonely moment that they are either contemplating or successfully in their life, that God is there in the midst of that. How do we translate that into our communities? How do we get that message into our churches and remove the fear and the stigma in order to be able to make it a part of our conversations, our small groups, our Sunday schools, our youth groups? How do we break through there? Well, so it's funny you should say that because the United Methodist Church has has said something about this. Uh, we, yeah, actually, we we meet every four years to say something about lots of different things. But I think there's, there's in, in our tradition, there is a, something called the Book of Discipline. Uh, and in it are um, s- some principles by which we live and practice our faith together as United Methodists. And on suicide, um, there is a statement. I want to read some of it with you just so you can hear what our denomination, how it talks about it. And then then we can talk about some of the things, some practical tools maybe that we could do in the church to, to address this. But this is what they say. We believe, um, again, this is United Methodists, we believe that suicide is not the way a human life should end. Often suicide is a result of untreated depression or untreated pain and suffering. The church has an obligation to see that all persons have access to needed pastoral and medical care and therapy in those circumstances that lead to loss of self-worth, suicidal despair, and or desire to seek physician-assisted suicide. We encourage the church to provide education to address biblical, theological, social, and ethical issues related to death, dying, including suicide. And then they say this, a Christian perspective on suicide begins with an affirmation of faith that nothing, including suicide, separates us from the love of God. Therefore, we deplore the condemnation of people who complete suicide, and we consider unjust the stigma that often falls on, falls upon them and upon the surviving families and friends. So I think in that, what we hear is that the church has an obligation to ensure that people have access to pastoral care, access to medical care, access to, um, to mental health services, that we should be advocates for that uh, and ensure that, that there are ways and mechanisms in which the church can support families and individuals who need those um, treatment plans and who need assistance. And then the other part of this is that we must stand as a united front to, to confront the stigma that's attached to suicide and the families, the surviving family and friends. That, that God's love is greater than any act of humankind and that God is with us in our suffering and in our loss and even in our worst moments. Um, and our responsibility as Christians, as a faith community, is to stand up for, for that kind of love that reconciles all things. Hmm. Now, what does that look practically? I think the first step we take as a faith community I think our uh, sort of our mantra through this whole podcast um, is to to de-escalate the conversation, to to make it approachable, to be honest and transparent and vulnerable, to help people see that they're not alone in life and in the struggles of life, and that if we start to do that on a regular basis, so most often churches address suicide when someone in their community commits or attempts suicide and only when it's visible generally too and visibly known, will they address it? What if our church has decided that every September we would address front on in ways that are inviting and encouraging and vulnerable people to talk about suicide, to talk about mental health, to make clear to their members of the community that, they have free access to pastoral care, that they have free access that will help support them in seeking medical or mental health care. Because a lot of people don't have access to mental health coverage in their insurance. And so are there ways in which the church can can raise money and provide a pool of support that would help people who are confronting this, who may not otherwise be able to afford 
to seek help have the resources to do that? And, and what if we people, took seriously that kind of... And help people know that if your church is not at a place that you have financially been able to reserve any funds yet, let's hope that's a goal of the future. But there are also uh, community options that are offer free services in almost every community. There is a walk-in mental health clinic. And it might look a little different in every one of your communities, but there are resources. And let's hope that we can keep working with churches so that they have a list of those resources that they can financially help support, get you connected with resources, but also have a list that if finances are more limited, that there is still access to those resources. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Michael. No, I, I yes, this, I think that's very helpful. That's something that most people just don't know about. They assume that uh, I wouldn't qualify for that for oh, all yeah. sorts of reasons. And almost anybody can go into the community mental health resources. There's, so, there's some creative um, ways to churches can partner with people like you, uh, Lindsay, mm-hmm. therapists and social workers. Um, one thing that we have often as churches is space, um, especially during the week. Um, and, or you can partner with a local therapist uh, to be a referral and, and you can help people get connected to them and, and you can, you can help them negotiate a rate and those sorts of things to try to help. What I found a lot, a lot of people will not seek help because they're afraid of a few things. One of those, they don't have coverage and they can't afford it. Two, they're concerned that if they go to see a therapist or psychiatrist that it's going to show up on their permanent medical record and their employer is going to find out. And so they don't want anybody to know. And um, Mental health is no different than any of the rest of your medical record. Nobody has access to it unless you give written permission for somebody to have access to it. So would you say that again, Lindsay? Mental health records are no different than the rest of your physical health medical records. And what that means is that nobody can just call up and access them. You have to give written permission for anybody to access your mental health or physical health records. The only entity that will know that you even saw somebody is your insurance company if you send it through your health insurance. Mm. And again, they cannot reveal to anybody that you saw somebody. If that is your biggest hang-up and fear, you always have the option of private pay with a therapist, which means you do not bill it to your health insurance. Mm -hmm. There is no need to do that if you're doing it only out of fear that somebody could access and know that you went. Because as we just said, nobody has the ability to know that you went. But some people feel safer doing it that way, or sometimes people don't always have mental health coverage or feel like their deductible is terrible and they'd rather pay out of pocket. Mm. And that's no different than any of our other medical care that some of y'all listening may have experienced before where you have chosen to self-pay somewhere, but nobody knows you went unless you, and I tell every client that has come into my private practice I will tell, I as a clinician will tell nobody that you were here. And if I see you out in public, I will not acknowledge you or anything to keep your confidence. At the same time, you have a right to tell nobody that you are seeing me. You also have a right to stand on the street corner and hold up a sign and yell to every person passing. I see Lindsay on Thursdays at 5 p.m. You can do that. 
and go you. Um, I have some people that yell out to me in the middle of the grocery store, hey, Lindsay, and will say hi and then introduce me to the rest of the family. Here's my therapist. Didn't know if you knew her. Uh, but again, nobody knows that you are getting those support services unless you tell them or you give written permission right. for other and, people to know. And the reason why we have that protection is the act that was signed in 1996, uh, named after the subaquatic, semi-subaquatic sub-Saharan mammal, the Hippo Act. Oh my goodness. You had to throw in some joke. I know that you were holding it in for so long during this episode. We were too serious this whole Too long. Too serious, too long. It's HIPAA. For anybody that's listening, please do not walk around and keep saying hippo. And believe it. If you want to say that as a joke, go for it. I just don't want somebody to laugh at you and roll their eyes at you if you you believe that it's hippo. Nobody can barge into your medical records like a hippo because of HIPAA, 1996. See, I'm oh here. I'm helping. I, Lindsay, you, you reminded me, <laughs> my, my wife, Emily, is a therapist, so she doesn't practice uh, now. But when she did, I can remember being at the grocery store and she would just, she would spot one of her patients and she would just take off take off. And, you know, at first I didn't know what was happening, but finally I, I was learned the context clues because she wouldn't say who it was. I couldn't know who it was either. Uh, but she's just like, I just, uh, we need to, we need to keep moving, you know? And then sometimes they were like, Emily, Emily. And then it's just this really um, great moment where they introduce themselves to me. And, you know, it's, so it is, it's, that's the, mm-hmm. the, the therapists, the clinicians take it very seriously. I mean, Emily would, it, die behind a bush to uh, to not you know to to not to create a situation because they because they don't want you to feel to help protect you. I yeah. mean, it's, so that it's you're not, not walking th- through the grocery store and then all of a sudden think about what you told. It's the same thing w- with us as pastors because sometimes we we people reveal to us things that um, are very um, potentially embarrassing or hurtful or mm-hmm. hard to deal with, and so. You know, when someone reveals something like that, I try to, if I see them in public, I will, I will just sort of stay back a little bit and let them initiate contact so that they don't feel like they're pressured. So we take this stuff very seriously. We, this is the most, this is why people like Lindsay get into their work is to help people in moments of crisis. So I, I'm going to, because I'm in no way at fault for taking us down this hippo based tangent. I have another question, and that question is this. Look back at those of us who have encountered and struggled with suicide and the challenges of suicidal ideation with our friends and families. Like, What kind of ongoing care or care needs to be had when we encounter those moments? Because I feel like the after effects of suicide or even an attempt are very lingering in our communities and our families and in our friends. What kind of care and support do we need to be prepared to offer when those kind of things happen or we become aware of them? Are you referencing the person that actually had those thoughts or attempted or their family and friends? Both. So for the person that's attempted or had those thoughts um, or, or successfully completed um, suicide, Initially, what they will probably need is uh, some sort of psychiatric crisis intervention. Um, Depending on where they are on that spectrum of suicidal ideation, they may need to be connected to an inpatient residential program. Mm for a period of time to stabilize their mental health and give them some tools and skills and support around them to manage those thoughts and and keep them from being so pervasive. Longer term, nobody needs to uh, almost... 
rarely does somebody need to be in a residential treatment facility um, forever. It is simply a stabilization place. So Lindsay, if I find myself or in a situation with another, that there's an immediate need, I'm concerned about an immediate need, what do I do? First of all, some of the key things that should send off alarm bells for you of it being a pressing immediate need is if you or somebody else are starting to collect or save pills or buy a weapon to be able to enact your thoughts of suicide. Another behavior that's a big red flag is giving away possessions that will indicate that somebody's often preparing for death. Somebody that's tying up loose ends, that might mean that they're organizing papers, trying to pay off their debts. Um, Again, if this is specific to somebody that uh, has been experiencing some thoughts of suicide before, um, plenty of people try to pay off their debt. This is a different situation. Um, And the other key indicator is people starting to say goodbye to family and friends. This might happen through text messages, uh, phone calls, uh, letter left behind. A lot of people will send up these alert systems or indicators as they try to wrap things up before they kill themselves. And so if you're seeing any of those things, that is what I would call a psychiatric emergency. And that needs to be uh, followed up with right away. You always have the option to call 911 for yourself or for somebody else that is expressing thoughts of suicide or even has the means in place to do so. It is, I, I would encourage people to call the suicide prevention lifeline most of the time that 911 is helpful but the suicide prevention lifeline is specifically trained mm-hmm. in helping somebody get connected with services and walk through their suicidal thoughts so i'm going to give that number and we'll make sure that it is in the show notes as well it is 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. If you're having thoughts about wanting to kill yourself or you are with somebody else that is having thoughts of suicide, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And if somebody is with you, with the means, attempting or getting close to following through on their thoughts, call 911 right that moment, and they will be out to be present with you. Mm. The great thing about the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is that they will connect you with local services for longer-term support along the way, that while they are a crisis hotline, they recognize that the crisis is not over in that moment. And so those are some of the initial things that you can do. If somebody is having suicidal thoughts, there are often mental health hospitals in your area around Atlanta There is Ridgeview and Peachford, to name a few of them. Other cities all have them. You could walk into the ER, uh, and a lot of hospitals, uh, any hospital can triage a mental health emergency. Some hospitals have uh, longer-term mental health support services, but oftentimes they'll get you connected with a treatment facility that specializes in those things. Hmm. 
Okay, so what about families, friends of those who maybe have attempted or have completed and we want to support them? I have had students who have asked questions about friends and family who have committed suicide and it is a very challenging place in life to be and uh, it's very easy to feel very weak in the support that we offer how should we care for those around us who are surrounded by and impacted by this issue i think for anybody that's been touched by this issue if you are wrestling with processing at all and working through it i'd encourage you to find your own therapist and find a safe space to be able to talk about it. Also, there's a lot of support groups that are available, especially in larger cities that can be uh, suicide-based support groups for family and for friends um, and for individuals that are experiencing suicidal thoughts or have uh, tried to kill themselves before and have survived and uh, then can participate in these support groups as well. I believe that having other people around to talk about it, as we mention all the time on this podcast, helps us feel not so alone Mm -hmm. in all of this, that the numbers are such that we are, if you have these thoughts, you are not alone. If you know somebody or you yourself have been impacted by suicide, you are not alone. That suicide rates are the highest among individuals 45 to 64. We talk all the time about young adults, but suicide is not something that stops Uh, and is only a concern until about age 24. It is present for so many ages. And so suicide rates are the highest with, as I said, with ages 45 to 64, and the next highest with ages 85 and older. Hmm. Younger populations actually have consistently lower rates Part of why we talk about it so much, though, with younger individuals is that suicide is the second leading cause of death, ages 10 to 24. And therefore, it, it gets a lot of focus because it is a, a surprising and um, jarring form of death because you don't have a lot of individuals ages 10 to 24 dying. Hmm. And so that's why we seem to talk about it a lot more, though it is prevalent in older Mm -hmm. ages as well. So what I hear in all this for us is how important it is to talk about this. Because if if we don't lower the bar, if we don't make it something we can talk about openly for fear that it's some unforgivable sin or that it's somehow contagious. If we talk about it, or we're going to give someone the idea um, to commit suicide just by mentioning it, the, all of those fears um, that we, we have, which are natural, they're, they're understandable that we have them, but the real work is to overcome those fears so that Mm -hmm. we can start to talk about this and make it open. And so parents talk to your children, be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable with them. So if they find themselves with, with these kinds of thoughts, they feel comfortable approaching you or another adult or someone else to a trusted person so that they can seek help. If, if you're a church leader, uh, set up a, a practice, a regular practice of, of highlighting the importance of taking care of your mental self um, that, that and then it's not mental, shameful physical, to ask spiritual, for help. That, that we all need help. We all need help. And we all have uh, challenges that we're working to address. So I, there, there's never a better time to start than now. Mm-hmm. Uh, having these conversations 
being open, seeking help if you yourself are confronted with these kinds of thoughts in your mind. Um, people are ready to help and, and they've, they've trained their whole lives for those moments to be able to help someone who's in real crisis and they will take it seriously and they will be confidential and they will care for you and they will help you um, find the support and resources that you need um, to live a more fruitful life. So please seek help. Please be help. Please make this real for people so they can talk about it. Amen. So we wrap up today. Yeah. Once again, the lifeline number 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. You are not alone. And we're so proud of you for reaching out to ask for help. God loves you and we love you. Amen. Thanks, Lindsay and Michael. And thanks to everyone for listening. Um, We uh, really do deeply care uh, about you and our communities. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to listen and to share and uh, to be empowered to change and impact lives, our own lives and the lives of those around us. Um, We believe that that's what God calls us to do. Uh, Special thanks to Justin Patton for producing this episode and um, helping us plan uh, and for doing all the music on the front end and the back end. And uh, if you want to work with Justin or you want his creative input on any of your projects, feel free to reach out. And if you have questions or would like to get connected with the resources, you can uh, reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, uh, especially Not Alone Pod on Instagram. Uh, as always, it's helpful for us if you're able to give us feedback, to share uh, specific episodes, and uh, review the podcast on Spotify or iTunes or Google Play. Uh, that is super helpful for us. So thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next episode.